in some cases, the response to therapy should be evaluated. For example, how well diuretics relieve the dyspnea and congestion of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and perhaps subsequently decrease sympathetic drive and heart rate. Conversely, and where feasibly, it may be useful to perform electrical or pharmacological cardioversion to assess the impact of AF rate on current heart failure symptoms, albeit that sinus rate may be short-lasting. These approaches can help it identify patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF who may benefit from additional interventions, including advanced heart failure therapy and AF ablation. Hi everyone, I'm Mary Stanbury. Joining me for today's discussion on atrial fibrillation and heart failure is Atilia Tika, a cardiologist and research fellow at the University of Birmingham Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences. She is also involved in the numerous European Society of Cardiology Scientific Committees and Task Forces. Hello everyone, thank you for joining. It is a great pleasure to be here with you today. Today we will be discussing the possibility of breaking the cycle of atrial fibrillation and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Opportunities and challenges that have also been discussed in the review article published recently in the Cardiac Failure Review. This podcast has been made possible through the help and support of the Cardiac Failure Journal team. Dr Tika, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation are two of the most common cardiovascular conditions encountered in daily practice and are leading causes of hospitalisation and adverse patient outcomes. Why do you think that is the case? Well, thank you, Mary, for this interesting question. We now know that both conditions have increasing prevalence and pose a growing burden on global healthcare system. They share common risk factors such as hypertension and obesity, but are themselves increasing in prevalence. Patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or AF are often multimorbid with advanced age, ischemic heart disease, diabetes, and other non-cardiovascular conditions. FPF and AF frequently coexist and each predisposes to the other. Patients with an already high risk of adverse events, including death, have an even worse prognosis when HFPF and AF combine. In your review, you propose various targets to break the cycle between heart failure and preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation. Learning lessons from epidemiology and associated comorbidities to improve diagnosis, treatment and patient well-being. Atilia, there are multi-level links between heart failure and atrial fibrillation, contributing both simple and complex mechanisms that lead to concurrence in individual patients. Much has been made of the interrelationship between heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation in the literature, but probably more important to shared risk factors or their exacerbation of one to another is the connection to a set of similar conditions or? Well, so 
You're right. We now know that early aging, hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, and a range of other comorbidities are all antecedents of both, of both heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF, many with inflammation as an underlying trigger. Now, the sequence that links inflammation to HFPEF, AF, and both diseases combined includes endothelial dysfunction and oxidative stress, culminating in end-organ manifestations such as diastolic dysfunction. In addition, multimorbidity is increasing in patients with heart failure, as demonstrated by a longitudinal study in which 87% had three or more comorbidities in 2012-2014 compared to 68% of a, de a decade uh, previously. Now, the interaction of these comorbidities will place additional burden on the mechanisms pertaining to HFPEF and AF. On a more technical level, with regard to mo more specific cardiac interactions, left atrial structure and functional remodeling is a clear mechanism through which HFPEF leads to AF. Left atrial enlargement and pressure changes commonly associated with a proarrhythmic substrate due to atrial fibrosis, which promotes border electrical remodeling, decreases atrial effective refractory period, and enhances the risk and burden of AF. Subsequent upregulation of the adrenergic and renin angiotensin aldosterone system can accentuate atrial fibrosis and changes to atrial and ventricular natriuretic peptide release and other neurohormonal activation and hemodynamic changes can trigger the development of ventricular myocardial fibrosis. This and the resultant structural changes often made worse by valve dysfunction further worsen half-path status and set up a continuum of deteriorating cardiac output. Added to this, persistent tachycardia from uncontrolled AF can contribute to both an atrial and ventricular cardiomyopathy. The poor outlook for patients with either heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or persistent forms of atrial fibrillation is further worsened when these conditions combine, augmented by the impact of interacting comorbidities and varying due to the heterogeneity of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Adverse event rates are generally increased, most noticeably death. Can you please share with us the prognostic implications? Well, that's an excellent point, Mary. Now, incident AF can double mortality risk in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction independent of underlying risk factors. Extrapolating from the published sources, the average absolute mortality rates are approximately 20% at two years in patients with combined heart failure with preserved ejection fractions and AF, increasing to around 45% at four years. Now, in a meta-analysis of 45,000 45, patients, the increase in mortality was higher when heart failure with reduced ejection fraction was combined with AF. However, there was no significant difference between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and AF and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF in the rates of hospitalization due to heart failure or incident stroke. Patients with heart failure and atrial fibrillation have poor quality of life, substantially worse across most domains than other long-standing illnesses with a negative trajectory over time and more patients deteriorating than improving.
Dr. Tika, let's go to another question here. Just regarding thoughts on how we can begin to close some of these gaps that we're singing, seeing in the diagnostic challenges for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation. Well, I think there have been some discussion in different trials, observational studies and registries have used varying definitions of half-path, including various cutoff points for left ventricular ejection fraction. However, the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction requires more than just, you know, normal left ventricular ejection fraction. Current guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology define heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as patients with a clinical syndrome of heart failure with characteristic symptoms and signs, a consistent rise in natriuretic peptides, and some objective evidence of diastolic impairment. Now, each of these aspects poses particular difficulties in the context of concomitant AF. Symptoms such as dyspnea and lethargy are common to both half-path and AF, and natriuretic peptides are elevated in patients with AF regardless of heart failure status, especially in those with persistent forms of AF. Now, in a recent healthcare-embedded clinical trial of patients with permanent AF and dyspnea, um, NIHI class 2 or above, the median anti-proBNP concentration was a bit over 1,000 picograms per milliliter a magnitude higher than the usual cutoff point to exclude heart failure. Furthermore, the documenting diastolic dysfunction using cardiac imaging is also challenging when AF is present. And there is very limited information about what measurements and what value should be used in these patients. The current guidelines suggested practice of averaging Multiple sequential bits in AF to obtain a reasonable mean is not based on scientific principle. To be a bit more specific, or a bit more technical, if you wish, the variation between bits for the measurements of E to E prime filling pressure is over 40% in AF, meaning that reproducibility is so low that we should question the value of such measurements. In contrast, the index bit approach selects appropriate cardiac cycles for measurements thereby addressing bit-to-bit -bit variation in AF. In a blinded study, this physiology-based approach was more reliable. Coefficients of variation reduced to 25% for E to E prime, and more efficient in terms of echocardiographer time. Dr. Tika, would you like to share your thoughts on distinguishing the relative impacts of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and, and atrial fibrillation on patient symptoms when conditions are present that is also very challenging. Can this impair the ability of clinicians to use focused treatments to improve quality of life, especially in the presence of comorbidities? So in some cases, the response to therapy should be evaluated. For example, how well diuretics relieve the dyspnea and congestion of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and perhaps subsequently decrease sympathetic drive and heart rate. Conversely, and where feasibly, it may be useful to perform electrical or pharmacological cardioversion to assess the impact of AF rate on current heart failure symptoms, albeit that sinus rate may be short-lasting. These approaches can help it identify patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF 
who may benefit from additional interventions, including advanced heart failure therapy and AF ablation. Assessment of health-related quality of life can be performed using various tools, including a generic assessment such as the EQ, 5D, and 36-item short-form healthy survey, or disease-specific questionnaires such as atrial fibrillation effect on quality of life. For heart failure, lower scores with the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire have been associated with higher all-cause death and heart failure hospitalization in both heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So it seems like you're facing a treatment paradigm in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation. Do patients with both of these conditions require a different approach to management that encompasses the key elements of management for each condition, but also respects the, inter the interconnected nature of both and their combined effect on therapeutic eff efficacy? I'm glad you brought this up. Well, a patient-centered, shared management approach is essential, in my opinion, focused on the key outcomes of importance to that individual patients rather than esoteric outcomes taken from clinical research studies. As patients with concomitant HFPATH and AF are often older, more comorbid, and already dealing with polypharmacy, it may be more relevant to focus on aspects that improve quality of life. In contrast, some patients will give a clear steer about their desire for prognosis improvement. Whichever approach is prioritized, feedback about progress can inform future clinical decision and tools such as quality of life questionnaires can be helpful in evaluating effectiveness and residual impairment. Can I ask your opinion on what are the key steps in the management of patients with heart failure and atrial fibrillation? Mary, I think it is important to refer here at the CAN-TREAT algorithm. Most treatment steps are similar regardless of the left ventricular ejection fraction of the individual patients reflecting the need to ensure hemodynamic stability first and foremost, more widespread use of anticoagulation to prevent thromboembolism and achieving euvolemia. More specific approaches for rate control, heart rate therapy, Rhythm control then diverge for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction compared with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, the intermediate group, also known as heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, should be treated as they have had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction due to consistent evidence that they benefit from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction treatments. An often neglected component of the care of patients with heart failure and AF to carefully and systematically address comorbidities, not just hypertension and myocardial ischemia, but also non-cardiovascular diseases. This requires an integrated approach to achieve the best outcomes, not only between heart failure and AF clinical uh, teams, but also the spectrum of healthcare professionals. Finally, to achieve the best outcomes, the conventional sequential management approach should be discontinued. Relevant components of the treatment algorithm can be started in parallel. For example, starting new therapies with waiting to fully update prior drugs. Such an approach has already been advocated for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And also, I think it 
it is very important to remember that anticoagulation is one of the only therapeutic approaches in AF with clear and proven ability to improve prognosis. Although there are no specific trials in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, post hoc analysis of the four major trials of direct oral anticoagulants showed similar efficacy in those with heart failure. Compared with warfarin, direct oral anticoagulants reduce the risk of stroke and systemic embolism in heart failure patients by 40% with a 24% uh, lower risk of major bleeding. Therefore, except in the case of uh, patients with severe mitral stenosis, mechanical valve prosthesis, or end-stage renal dysfunction, direct oral anticoagulants are the first-line approach for the prevention of thrombembolism in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF. The place of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure is unclear due to the lack of trials against direct oral anticoagulant therapy. Current guidelines indicate the use of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure only in cases with an absolute contraindication for direct oral anticoagulant therapy, for example, intracranial bleed without a reversible cause. Where available, thoracoscopic left atrial appendage clipping is also an option in these patient groups. Dr. Tika, I'd like to ask you for your take-home message for our listeners. Well, I'd say that. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and AF are increasingly prevalent and, when combined, lead to a substantial increase in mortality and poor quality of life. The diagnosis is challenging and conventional therapy is often unable to improve clinical endpoints. A paradigm shift is needed in clinical management that considers the joint effects of both conditions in order to adequately treat patients. And maybe the most important, this approach should be personalized. Use non-sequential treatment prescription targeted to both HFPF and AF components and integrate attention on underlying comorbidities to prevent progression. I'd like to give, again, a special thanks to Mary for your time today. We absolutely appreciate the fact that you have taken time away from your busy schedule to join us and provide us with your great information. Your participation was invaluable. Mary, I'd like you to ask for your insights with our listening on AF heart failure cycle. Dr. Tika, it was good to hear that you believe a patient-centered shared management approach is essential. As part of my involvement as a patient and public involvement team member on the RATE AF trial, I shared responsibility for the patient focus groups. We used three validated question of life questionnaires. Atrial fibrillation specific quality of life was assessed using the atrial fibrillation effect on quality of life questionnaire. Generic quality of life was assessed by using the EQ5D and the SF36 surveys as mentioned earlier by yourself. The results from the eight women and 11 men aged between 61 and 87 years all cited a lack of information from healthcare professionals about their atrial fibrillation diagnosis, a lack of focus on quality of life in consultations, creating a sense of frustration, isolation and reduced confidence. 
The impact of comorbidities is poorly appreciated in the context of atrial fibrillation, and I'm sure this must also be the case with heart failure. The RATE AF trial concluded that assessing and measuring improvement in quality of life and symptoms is fundamental to better management of patients with permanent atrial fibrillation who suffer from substantial reduction in their physical well-being. And as with comorbidities, I believe this must also be the cause case for heart failure patients. This is just impressive, Mary. Thank you for sharing this with us and for opening up. So thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye.